Chapter 20 of A Group of Famous Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Group of Famous Women by Edith Horton. Chapter 20 Women in Pioneer Life and on the Battlefield. If we wish to know the political and moral condition of a state, we must ask what rank women hold in it. Their influence embraces the whole of life. Amy Martin The first foot that pressed Plymouth Rock was that of Mary Chilton, a fair and delicate maiden, and there followed her eighteen women who had accompanied their husbands on the Mayflower to the bleak, unknown shore of Massachusetts. Truly, the spindle side of the Puritan stock deserves great admiration and respect. These women came from a civilised land to a savage one, from homes of plenty, where they had been carefully guarded and tended, to a place where their lives could be only danger, toil and privation. Often they were obliged to pound corn for their bread, and many were the times, their husbands being away fighting the Indians, when they gathered their children together, panic-stricken by the war-whoops that rang out from the wilderness nearby. Little wonder that four of these eighteen women died during the first winter, killed by cold, hunger and mental anguish. The early European settlers of America, both men and women, were of a truly heroic breed. It was spiritual as well as bodily courage they displayed suffering as they did for a religious principle. The women often performed the duties of men, even planting the crops in their husbands' absence, and frequently using firearms to guard their children and their homes. Shoulder to shoulder with the men these women worked, and from the struggle was evolved a new type, the woman of 1776, without whose assistance the Revolutionary War could scarcely have succeeded. One of these women, who might have lived in luxury, aloof from scenes of suffering, had she so wished, stands out prominently. This was Martha Washington, the wife of the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, who gathered the wives of the officers around her at Valley Forge during the severe winter of 1777-78, and with them undertook the work of relieving the needs of the soldiers. Under her leadership, the women gave up their embroidery, spinet-playing and other light accomplishments, and knitted socks and mittens of which hundreds of pairs were distributed. We may regard her as the pioneer in a form of work which later developed into sanitary commissions and the great organisation of the Red Cross. A different type of woman was Moll Pitcher. She showed her courage in quite another way. She was the wife of John Hayes, a gunner. At that time, a few married women, who found it easier to stand the fearful strain of battle than to remain at home in suspense, waiting for news of it, were allowed to accompany their husbands to the battlefield. Not to fight, oh no, but to wash and mend and cook for the men. Moll was one of these. During the Battle of Monmouth, Molla the pitcher, as she was called, because of the stone pitcher she used in carrying water to the soldiers, was engaged in her usual work 
when she saw her husband fall by the side of his gun. Running to him, she helped him to a place of safety. Then, at his request, she returned to his gun. The commander was just about to have it taken from the field, but as Moll offered her services, he allowed it to remain. She managed it so well that the report of her prowess spread, even to the ears of General Washington. The general called upon her to thank her, and the Continental Congress gave her a sergeant's commission and half pay for life. Captain Molly, done with military service, took her wounded husband home and nursed him, but he died of his wounds before the war closed. Linda Darra, a Quakeress of Philadelphia, by her quick wit and courage, saved General Washington's army from capture at White Marsh after the defeat at Germantown. During the winter of 1777, the British commander, General Howe, had his headquarters in Second Street. Directly opposite dwelt William and Lydia Darra, strict Quakers whose religion debarred them from taking sides in the war. Because of this, perhaps, the British officers considered their home a safe place for private meetings, a large rear room in the house being frequently used for conferences with the staff officers. One evening, the Adjutant General told Lydia that they would be there until late, but that he wished the family to retire early, adding that, when the conference was over, he would call her to let them out and put out the lights. Lydia obeyed, but could not sleep. Her intuition told her that something of importance to Washington was being discussed. Try as she might to be neutral, as a Quaker should, her sympathies were with the great general. At last, she slipped from her bed, crept to the door of the meeting room and listened at the keyhole. She heard an order read for all British troops to march out on the evening of December the 4th to capture Washington's army, which was then encamped at White Marsh. Frightened and excited, she returned to her room. Not long after, the officer knocked at her door, but she pretended to be asleep and did not answer. As the knocking continued, she finally opened the door and sleepily returned the officer's good night. Then she locked up the house and put out the lights, but spent the remainder of the night in thinking over what she should do. Early next morning she told her husband that their flour was all gone and she would have to go to the mill at Franklin, five miles away, to get more. She presented herself at the British headquarters, bright and early, asking permission to pass through the lines on a domestic errand. Permission was granted and she started for Franklin. She did not stop there, however, but leaving her bag to be filled ready for her upon her return, she continued walking until she reached the American outposts. Asking that she might speak to an officer, she told what she had heard, begging that she might not be betrayed. Then she hastened back to the mill, secured her bag of flour, and returned home as if nothing had happened. And so it came about that, when the British reached White Marsh, they found the American army, which they had planned to surprise, drawn up in line awaiting battle. No battle took place, but the British returned to Philadelphia and there tried to find out who had betrayed their plans. Lydia Darra was called up and questioned. She said that the members of her family were all in bed at eight o'clock on the night of the conference. It is strange, said the officer, 
I know that you were sound asleep, for I had to knock several times to awaken you. So the matter was dropped, and nobody knows to this day whether the British ever learned the truth or not. The story of Emily Geiger's bravery has been told in prose and poetry many times. It became necessary for General Green to get reinforcements from General Sumter. The latter was about 50 miles away, and the country between them was overrun with British soldiers. When Emily heard that General Green needed a messenger for the dangerous journey, she immediately offered her services. Well, she knew that discovery would mean being hanged for a spy, but the risk did not appall her. Rather unwillingly, the general consented to her entreaties and entrusted the letter to her, telling her its contents in case it should by any chance get lost. A woman, he said, might run a chance of getting past the British soldiers when a man would surely fail. I have a fleet horse, said Emily, which I broke and trained myself. I know the country and I am sure I can get through. She dashed away but was captured on the second day and imprisoned in a room of an old farmhouse. As soon as she was alone, she tore the letter up and chewed and swallowed the pieces. This was done none too soon, for immediately afterward a woman entered, and Emily had to submit to being searched. Nothing of a suspicious nature being found upon her, the British allowed her to go on. Before sundown, Emily reached General Sumter's camp and delivered the message. As a result, after a hard-fought battle at Utah Springs, the British were defeated by General Green. Emily Geiger married happily and lived to a good old age. Long should she be remembered for her courage and patriotism. It is certain that at least one woman enlisted in the Continental Army and fought as a soldier in the Revolutionary War. This woman was Deborah Sampson, the daughter of poor parents of Plymouth County, Massachusetts. She was but 22 years of age when she left home, adopted male attire, and enlisted under the name of Robert Shirtliff. A flaxen-haired girl was Deborah, with blue eyes and rosy cheeks. She was not pretty, although as a man she might have passed for handsome. Accustomed from childhood to do farm work, she had acquired the vigour and strength that enabled her to perform the trying duties of military life. Deborah saw something of real war. At White Plains, she received two bullet holes in her coat and one in her cap. At Yorktown, she went through a severe fight, but came out unhurt. Once, she was shot in the thigh, but fear of discovery exceeded the pain of the wound, and she refused to go to the hospital. Later, she fell ill of brain fever, and in the hospital, her sex was discovered by the doctor. He did not betray her, but as soon as her health permitted, he had her removed to his own house, where he gave her every care. When her health was restored, the physician had a conference with the commander of the regiment to which Robert belonged. Soon there followed an order to the young man to carry a letter to Washington. Our young soldier felt very uneasy, but a soldier must obey. In due time, she appeared before General Washington. With great delicacy, the general said not a word to her regarding the letter she had brought, but handed one, Robert Shirtliff, a discharge from the army, 
and a note containing a few words of advice, with sufficient money to pay her expenses until she could find a home. Deborah then resumed woman's attire and returned to her family. At the close of the war, she married Benjamin Gannett of Sharon. While Washington was president, he invited Deborah to visit the capital. She accepted, and during her stay there, Congress passed a bill granting her a pension for the services she had rendered the country. It has been stated, and is doubtless true, that many women, disguised as men, enlisted during the Civil War and served as soldiers. Others followed the army as nurses, fighting when it became necessary. Many of these women went because they could not bear the separation from their husbands. A notable example of this class was Madame Turchin, wife of the Colonel of the 19th Illinois. She was the daughter of a Russian officer and had always lived in foreign camps with her father. During the War of the Rebellion, she accompanied her husband to the battlefield and became a great favourite with the soldiers under his command. To her the men went when they were ill or in any trouble, knowing they would always be met with sympathy and when necessary would be given careful nursing. Upon one occasion, when the regiment was actively engaged in Tennessee, Colonel Turchin fell ill, having to be carried for several days in an ambulance. His wife took the most tender care of him and also assumed his place at the head of the regiment, even leading the troops into action. Officers and men in the ranks alike obeyed her, for her courage and skill equaled those of her husband. Without faltering, she faced the hottest fire. When her husband recovered and again took command, she retired to the rear and resumed the work of nursing the sick and wounded. Like Madame Turchin, Mrs. Cady Brownell had been accustomed to camp life, her father having been a soldier in the British Army. She married an officer of the 5th Rhode Island Infantry and accompanied him to the front. She bore the regimental colours and marched with the men, asking no favours and standing the brunt of battle fearlessly. A fine shot was Mrs. Cady Brownell, also an expert in the use of the sword. She was in General Burnside's expedition to Roanoke Island and Newburn. There, her husband was so seriously wounded that he was judged unfit for further service and given his discharge. Mrs. Brownell asked for a discharge likewise, and together they retired to private life. Annie Etheridge of Michigan is said to have been with the 3rd Michigan in every battle in which it was engaged. When the three years of its service was over, she followed the re-enlisted veterans to the 5th Michigan. Through the entire four years of war, this fearless woman never left the field, though often under the hottest fire. She made herself beloved and respected by both officers and men. Bridget Devins, known as Michigan Bridget, because she went to the front with the 1st Michigan Cavalry, in which her husband served as private, was noted for her daring deeds and her good service. When the troops were about to retreat, it was Michigan Bridget who rallied them. When a soldier fell, she took his place, fighting bravely in his stead. Often she carried the wounded from the field, risking her own life in the performance of her duty. Michigan Bridget liked military life so well that at the close of the war, 
she and her husband joined the regular army and were sent to a station on the western plains. These women soldiers, who served so bravely on the field of battle, we must honour, yet we cannot regret that their numbers were small. The nobler service of those countless women who, with white faces and breaking hearts, sent to the front their husbands, fathers and sons, can never be properly estimated nor sufficiently honoured. These women toiled day and night, determined that the soldiers should be well cared for and well fed. They organised relief work so that the fighters might have comforts and good hospitals. These women as truly enlisted for battle as did the others who went to the front. End of chapter 20 End of A Group of Famous Women by Edith Horton